Hey, turn sharp. <laughs> I have no desire to turn sharp. <laughs> okay, here's a sharpie. Hey, that's great. Man, those things, when, it, when those wheels really dig in, Don, John, when you turn it's when you get the rooster tail. The uh, suspension Charlie? system on that thing is fantastic. That yeah. sounds good. Uh, we sound like we've probably got enough of the Grand Prix. We're willing to let you go on from here. Hello and welcome to Radio Motherboard. I'm staff writer Jason Kebler, and you just heard some astronauts from the Apollo 16 mission driving around in a lunar rover. That was pretty cool, right, Chris? Uh, that was pretty cool, yeah. Yeah. We've got Chris O'Coin here, who is a senior editor, video editor at Vice. Uh, you probably remember him from some of our earlier episodes, and I've been dying to get him back on the podcast, so I brought him along for this one. Um, we are going to tell you a bit of a mystery. Um, it's, going to, it's going to unfold over the course of the next 30 minutes or so, or however long this podcast ends up being. Um, and it all started a few months ago when I filed a bunch of Freedom of Information Act requests with NASA. Do we regularly file Freedom of Information Act requests in Motherboard? The new and improved uh, journalistically focused motherboard does, yes. Is that, is that the new tag? <laughs> That's um, not the new tag, but uh, a couple months ago, I like, started being interested in uncovering like government documents. So I started filing a bunch, and now a few people have uh, filed some. We just got glomarred by the FBI, actually, which is pretty tight. Oh, what did the FBI glomar us for? So Wait, the, for the listener, the glomar, you should explain what the glomar right, is. Right, so the glomar was a ship... I believe that someone asked for information about using one of these requests and the FBI said we can neither confirm nor deny the existence of this ship or documents pertaining to the ship or something like that. Um, and there's a big court case and basically the court said that in like national security or ongoing investigation cases, the FBI is allowed to say we can neither confirm nor deny uh, you know, that we even know what you're talking about. And that was the origin of that statement was the, the Glomar incident, right? Like yeah. That's where yeah. It all it's comes like from. the Glomar response. Yeah. yeah. So there's uh, a really, there's a really, not to promote another podcast, but there's a fantastic episode of Radio Lab about, about the Glomar, about how it came to be. Yeah. And I may have gotten a couple details there wrong, uh, but I believe that's the basic gist I don't, of I don't it. remember all of them, but yeah, go just, listen to that yeah, episode to that. if yeah. you want to hear it. But anyways, uh, we got Glomard in trying to uh, uncover documents pertaining to Carnegie Mellon University's uh, interactions with the FBI. Mm. Um, they were accused of basically helping the FBI crack tour anonymity. Editor's note, this was actually the CIA, not the FBI. My bad. But it's true that Glomar responses are used by national security agencies, including the FBI, all the time. When was this? Recently? This was very recent. Yeah, Lorenzo and Joseph Cox have done a, couple, a series of stories about like their relationship. And they basically said that the FBI... So Carnegie Mellon was going to have a big uh, talk at one of these hacker conferences, I believe it was DEF CON or something, about how to crack Tor. Uh, and then about a week before it, they are like, talk is canceled took down the website and everything. Uh, and then maybe like a month or two later, Silk Road 2 and all these other darknet markets got busted by the FBI. Ooh. Yeah. And so people were like, I think that was probably Carnegie Mellon. And then there's like some court documents that just came out that was like, 
uh, a university source helped us, but they didn't say which university. Didn't some didn't um didn't some people think that Silk Road Two was just like a honeypot anyway, or did that prove not to be true? I believe that proved not to be true because there was a guy arrested associated with it. But uh, yeah, that that was a big conspiracy theory going on for a while. I love a good I love a good conspiracy theory. So back to uh, the. FOIA documents that we're going to talk about today. Oh, wait, real quick before okay. we get into that. Okay. Am I crazy or did Motherboard Editor-in-Chief file, uh, Derek Mead, file a FOIA request once for the uh, like super vacuum that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed supposedly built in his maximum security prison? Yes, he did. And it's been repeatedly declined. And like we have kind of gone back and forth with, uh, I believe, DHS or the CIA. I think the CIA about, you know, this super vacuum designed in a secret prison. It's just like a really good vacuum, right? Like a, like, like a, like an OREC or something. I believe probably better than that. I mean, who knows? Uh, but yes, this is a long and twisted tale that I believe Derek will probably someday report when he get has into time. It later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, of course, is the mastermind, mastermind of yeah. the 9 11 attacks. And he's in a maximum security. I think, I don't think it's a secret prison. I think he's in a maximum security prison with like where they set like McVeigh and stuff and, and maybe the Unabomber. It's I believe a, he is now, but I thought that he designed this in like a oh, house in the Netherlands or something, you know, like oh, one of these secret prisons Oh, like a somewhere. CIA black site or something? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, and oh, so, that's why they don't want people. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of was like, well, what's the big deal about a vacuum? But who knows? Yeah. <laughs> right. That makes sense. Right. Okay. So on to today's mystery. Um, I basically got a bunch of documents from the NASA Inspector General, which is NASA's like law enforcement arm. And they investigate any sort of like malfeasance or, uh, you know, crime committed either against NASA or by NASA. And they also investigate some other stuff. What crimes has NASA committed? So like if, for instance, a contractor is like bribing them or something, they investigate it. If uh, an employee looks at child porn, they investigate it or any type of porn. And this does happen because it's such a massive, massive uh Organization. There's so there's going to be some bad apples. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah. So there's like dozens and dozens of like basically closed reports. And I got a list of all of the closed reports for the year 2014. The criminal investigations that NASA undertakes into its own organization aren't public knowledge. They are. I mean, I obtained them with the Freedom of Information but Act. They request, but they don't put it out there. They don't put it out there. They're not like, hey, here's such and such happened. And I have... That's kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. And there's some really good ones that I am hoping to get back soon. One, I'll just tell you now, the title is uh, Possible uh, Illegal Use of the Zero Gravity Airplane. Whoa. Which, the Vomit the Comet? Vomit Comet, yeah. So my theory is that an employee took it for a joyride. Like they uh, took the friends and fam on or like had yeah, like a like party a girl, and everyone got like, like fucked up. That's, yeah. that's what I'm hoping for. Um, you know, I'm expecting those docs back like any minute. Somebody now, was trying so. to get like zero G laid and they were like, I can get the fucking vomit comet, dude. We can we can go on a parabolic and have a time. I think so. I mean, and then there's a follow-up report that says like accusations of retaliation against a whistleblower who like told on them. So wow. it's like definitely true. That I'm is such a great like plot for a movie or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyways, oh, the title of this one is called Recovery of Prototype Lunar Rover uh, out of Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama. And basically it's a very, very sad series of documents in which NASA found out that they had a prototype lunar rover uh, sitting in a backyard somewhere in Alabama. 
and they went to go get it and it met a sad fate. So here's an excerpt uh, from the Office of the Inspector General investigation. In February 2014, a U.S. Air Force historian, his name is redacted, contacted uh, the Office of the Inspector General concerning a lunar rover prototype located in the backyard of a residence in Blountsville, Alabama. The historian provided pictures of the lunar rover at the residence and a historical picture of the rover with someone, also redacted, driving it on a test track at Marshall Space Flight Center. The reporting agent from the Office of the Inspector General contacted someone from back in the 1960s who worked on it. Uh, He said that, yes, the photos look like the lunar rover, uh, and then NASA went to go find it because they believed it was theirs. Uh, They sent a letter to this person who lived at the house saying, It has come to the attention of the Marshall Space Flight Center historian that you may be in possession of a prototype of a lunar roving vehicle. We believe that the vehicle currently in your possession is the local scientific survey module, a mobility test article developed by Brown Engineering over the course of 1965 and 1966 that was used for human factors studies and mobility evaluations. Marshall played a crucial role in designing these and we'd really like it back, more or less. So they sent that letter to the person. How did the rover get there? That is the mystery that we are trying ah. to solve. It's very unclear on what exactly happened. So, and then in the closing documents, which is December 11th, 2014, so it took them like seven months to investigate this more or less. It said, upon contacting the current owner uh, in Blountsville, Alabama, we learned that the lunar rover had been sold for scrap after its owner had passed away. Since the vehicle is no longer available for recovery, this matter is closed in the files of this office. No further action will occur. So someone in Alabama had a historic prototype from the 1960s of a moon buggy. And was this a fully operational prototype or was it just like a mock-up? So it was operational in that uh, it could be driven around on like the ground on earth it was never taken to space obviously and the actual lunar rover that went to space several of them did i think i believe there are three still on the moon uh they all were like way different and way bigger um but this was like one of the very first ones where they're like oh i wonder if this will work so Um, is this like the the pathfinder that they have on earth in the martian that they use to communicate with mark watney kind of thing or is it like it's a human one like you can ride in it okay like yeah so the photo that i was able to track down shows uh verner von braun who is like the father of the rocket or the saturn V rocket um he's like driving it around in alabama so whoever had it could was could just drive it around like a a go-kart Basically. I believe so. I mean, so so we didn't really know much about this rover at all uh, when we got these documents because there's no photo in it. Uh, I was able to track down that historical photo by Googling around a bit. Um, but yeah, so NASA believed that it had been totally destroyed. Um, and Why doesn't NASA keep better track of their shit? That is a very good question. And uh, we are going to talk to some people about why that is the case. But basically, uh, it was during the height of the space race. And they were like, just make as much stuff as you can. Uh, There's no time to tag anything. We've got to beat the Russians. So they just build shit and then throw it away and build shit and throw it away kind of thing. Yeah, more or less. So we won. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) right? We did. We did win. So uh, now I guess we'll get into the story part of this. Basically, I wrote a very short uh, post 
um, and I called up Robert Perlman of collectspace.com. Robert is clued into a huge community of space collectors, and so I thought maybe he could help me find out what happened to this thing. There are thousands of space collectors or people who would identify themselves as space collectors around the world. That number grows significantly if you consider that space memorabilia touches just about every type of collecting. So if you collect rare books, there are rare space books. If you collect models, there are space models. If you collect trading cards, there are astronaut trading cards. Um, and of course, stamps and autographs and all the other forms of, of collecting. But those who focus specifically on space and the artifacts from the actual space program, um, there are pockets of them around the world that total uh, a few thousand people uh, and is growing. Um, it's a new hobby as space exploration is only about 50 years old. Um, it tends to attract uh, educated individuals, but um, it uh, really spans the, the gamut from young kids to uh, people who remember when we who were young kids when we walked on the moon. Um, so, and and really, there's I've never met anyone who who's said that they haven't been somehow fascinated by the activities by NASA or the other world space um, agencies. And so everyone can relate in some way to the wonder that is space exploration, and, um, and many of them desire to own a piece. Much of the first 50 years of spaceflight, um, space exploration was an activity that was limited to governments. And in the United States, that was uh, the purview of NASA and to some point the Department of Defense. Um, and so anything that went to space went through, uh, went through, um, the government itself and was government property. And government property by law is government property until the government says it's not its property. Um, and so, uh, collectors have to be careful following the provenance or history of the items that they're collecting. Um, has documentation that shows that the federal government released those items uh, from its property through surplus sales or auctions um, or, in some cases, gifts. Uh, the problem was that at the beginning of the program, uh, a lot of focus was, was made on documenting the items while they were being in use for, for quality control, but as the items were released, there was less documentation or less um, effort to track them. Um, in some cases, there were there were oral agreements about how things were given away, but nothing was ever documented or written down, and that later created some conflict. Uh, for example, within the past five years, uh, the astronauts, the early astronauts, had to seek out the help of Congress to pass a law to state that the items that they kept from their spacecraft were their own because NASA's legal arm, the, the Office of Inspector General and General Counsel, was looking at these sales that the astronauts were making of their of their mementos and seeing these figures, these sale figures raised into the six figures, maybe, and, and, and bordering seven figures, and couldn't find any paperwork to justify that they actually owned the items. But the astronauts knew that they were given permission to keep these items back in the day. Um, they certainly didn't steal them. Um, they were their, their mementos. And it opened up a can of worms because they had sold some items already. They had donated items to museums. Were those items legally donated? Uh, they had given items to charities to raise funds. Were those, were those funds properly uh, authenticated? And so um, 
and so they went to Congress, and, and Congress actually did pass a law that had to state that, yes, the Apollo-era astronauts, meaning the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo-era astronauts, had the right to keep the and do whatever they wanted with uh, the items they kept from their spacecraft that flew on the mission. Um, that doesn't apply to everything. It only applies to those, those astronauts' mementos. There are other, uh, for anything that was not in an astronaut's possession, you you need to find the NASA surplus paperwork or a record of the surplus sale that shows that it came out of NASA. But if you don't have that, it, you really need to try to build up the provenance or, or documentation to show that NASA no longer wanted that item and did indeed release it. Turns out that Robert actually did know quite a bit about the original purpose of the lunar rover. So he told me a bit about you know why it was designed and that sort of thing. So we so we know that. Um, the moon buggy was built by Brown Engineering. We know that it was built for Marshall Space Flight Center. We don't know the terms of that contract, whether it was Brown Engineering building it to hope to win the contract for the ultimate Apollo lunar rover, or whether they were awarded a contract to build a prototype lunar rover. So the, the ownership of the original ownership of that lunar buggy uh, or that prototype uh, rover doesn't, is not clear. Um, but let's, let's say assume, assume the fact that it was NASA property, um, that NASA paid Brown Engineering to build it, which would have been reasonable and within the normal course of business back then. Um, at some point, it was uh, it obviously left NASA control. Um, then it somehow, of course, ended up in a backyard. This was not something that was built to go to space, and so there wasn't a whole lot of attention at the time. We were in a race with the Russians to get to the moon first. We were, um, we were still racing to, uh, to complete the Apollo program before money ran out as the missions went on. And so there wasn't a whole lot of attention being placed on, um, uh, on uh, prototypes like this in terms of multiple documents showing you know, where, how each item was acquired and where it was, when, how it was going to be disposed of. Uh, there were more pressing concerns. And so, it, and with the passage of time, you've lost the, the institutional knowledge, the people who would have been around to remember clearly uh, that, oh yeah, we, we bought that from Brown Engineering. Oh yeah, we, we released that that day. So I wrote up the story and we published it. And then... Almost immediately after the story ran that it was, uh, it was destroyed, that suddenly the, there were reports coming out that it still existed. Um, uh, you broke the the story that it was that it was still sitting in a in a scrapyard um, waiting to be sold, and uh, almost concurrently, um, I got an email from a reader saying, "Hey, um, I just saw in the say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. One hundred percent online." you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Newspaper, uh, in an Alabama local newspaper, that there was this classified ad for a moon buggy for sale. There's no picture of it, but the reader had followed up and it seemed to be the same moon buggy. Uh, and the timing of that, completely coincidental. No connection between that ad being placed when it was and the uh, your initial article and then my subsequent follow-up running at the same time. It's not in, like, the state newspaper. It's not even in the Huntsville Times. Um, it was in a newspaper serving the specific community for which this this. Uh, the scrapyard was located. And it wasn't only reports. I actually got a call from a man named Johnny Worley. Just through the, um, we have a, a uh, American metal market and the salvage industry had picked it up and was talking about the scrapyard in Alabama that had gotten in a uh, this piece of history, this lunar vehicle, and had scrapped it, and how ashamed it was that it wasn't reserved, preserved. And uh, it was so amazing to me that this thing in the American metal market, when Motherboard had published the story, it went all over the world through the American metal market to every scrapyard, every steel mill, anywhere in the world. Uh, it went out. Then I started getting calls from all over the United States, particularly. Uh, people had known that Noah knew that we had such a vehicle, and they were wondering if it was the same. And then that's when I contacted uh, you and says, well, you know, I've had this unit in storage for all this time. Right. And did not, did not scrap it. Is it unusual that people bring valuable or unique items to your scrapyard? This is the most unique item I've ever had come in, but I do get different types of automobiles, exotic cars, uh, a lot of history, uh, older type uh, equipment. I've had equipment come in dating back in the late uh, 1800s. Uh, It's always been interesting to me. Uh, I found an old gun that dated back into the 1600s. I still have it in my possession. And this stuff came in through the scrap. Somebody had thrown it off in our scrap pile. I just remember looking at it before it came in, and I had gotten a call. I was actually in Memphis. It came in my one of my Alabama locations. I was familiar that it, the uh, Lunar Rover did exist, and I had tried to purchase it for about a year before it actually came in for scrap. The only thing that I can tell you is that the gentleman was a road commissioner in Bluntsville, Alabama. He had he loved going to different type of auctions. He was sort of a junk collector. He had gone to a NASA auction. I don't know the time. It said in his garage, NASA had looked for this lunar unit for... 25 years was what they told me, and I'm sure he must have had it 10, 15 years before then. So my plan worked, more or less. I found out where the rover was today. I was able to track it down, but I still didn't know much about its history. 
And in the days after we published it, a bunch of local media in Alabama ran stories and was trying to figure out what exactly happened to this rover. And while we still don't know for sure, we did find a man named Skeet Vaughn, an 86-year-old who worked on the team at Marshall when this was being tested. What was your role on the team? Well, in my team, I actually got into it about 1963, 65, I guess it was, 64, 65. And my job at Marshall was to develop a lunar design criteria for mobility on the moon. Mm -hmm. So I had to come up with some kind of information about what the lunar surface was like. So the job was to take a lot of photographs, study those, to a lot of look, take, read a lot of technical information I could find about the moon surface because I'm not a, a geologist. So I went to Flagstaff, Arizona, which is the Center for Astrogeology, and worked with the people there a little bit. There, the geologists were studying mapping the moon. So taking that information and taking other, other types of information I could gain, I came up with a document, which is called the Environmental Criteria Document for the Lunar Rover. Mm -hmm. That document was finished about 1967, but later on, we didn't even start the rover program until about 1969, when we when the contracts were given to General Motors, Boeing and General Motors. But we've done a lot of work earlier, and here we actually tested a lot of the vehicles here at Marshall, the big vehicle and the smaller type little vehicles. Right. So there's this, uh, you know, photo of of um, Dr. Von Braun driving yeah, this around. Yeah. Um, were you there when that photo was taken? Oh, no, I wasn't there when I was taken. No, actually, I, the reason I knew so much about that vehicle is because I had some documentation. A good friend of mine was a program manager of that vehicle, and that was, and Von Brown wrote an article in 1960, I think he wrote the article, about 1968, he called the Lunar Scientific Survey Module, but in reality, we just called it the MTA, the Mobility Test Article. And mm. what happened was, he wanted some kind of device, some kind of vehicle that the engineers could mess around with to get some idea of the human factor relationship of the vehicle itself and the man in the spacesuit, how would he be able to operate the vehicle and things like that. So Von Brown suggested we build something like this. Mm -hmm. So the contract was let to Brown Engineering Company and they actually produced the vehicle. Right. Um, and do you have any idea what happened to that vehicle after NASA was done with it? No, normally what happened was normally when you have a vehicle, it's just a test vehicle, you don't keep too many records on it. But you, if it's a piece of flight hardware, you do have very good records on it. So what I think happened was that this vehicle was just a test vehicle, and finally they decided, well, we don't need this vehicle anymore, we'll just excess it. And NASA does a lot of excessing stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so they probably, what happened, it was put up for auction, and this guy saw it and wanted to buy it, and he bought it. And for some reason, he decided that He'd keep it in his garage, in his, in his barn for years. <laughs> right. And that's what happened to a lot of stuff like that, you know. Right. Um, so when you heard that this thing was still around, um, I understand you went and saw it. What, uh, what were your feelings when you saw this thing from, you know, so long ago? Well, it just, you know, just wow, because that's one reason. I mean, I, uh, I, I knew about the vehicle naturally because I have a website in which there's a picture of the bomb bound driving the vehicle itself. And I was lucky enough to have some documentation from this friend of mine that gave me some papers he had about physical size of the vehicle, measurements and things like that. So actually I got to take those blueprints and go down and check the vehicle and they were the, it was the actual vehicle. Mm -hmm. What and do you? They made on, and they made only one of them, only one vehicle was made. Right, and then was that, uh, 
design used in the future, uh, you know, design of the actual rovers, or was it kind of like not a failure, but say an early version that was kind of scrapped? No, no, that 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 vehicle there was one of our first, what I call one of our first small vehicles to mess around with. Mm-hmm. And actually, we flew that vehicle in the, in the zero gravity, low gravity aircraft at one six g gravity and had the astronaut try to get on and get off it when they're in the spacesuits to get some idea of the human factor relationship between the vehicle and the man. Oh, wow. So it, it didn't just do land tests? Oh, no, no. no. It, was, it was useful. Very yeah. useful. So I still had a lot of questions. Why did NASA say that it was closing the case? Why did it say the lunar rover was no longer available for recovery? I asked if NASA would talk to me for this podcast Um, They said no, but they did send me a statement. This is from Tracy McMahon-Mahan, who is a press relations person at Marshall Space Flight Center. She said, we really have nothing to add. The NASA Inspector General report is accurate in its description of the investigation. We really can't speculate on the item the scrap dealer possesses because we weren't able to validate what it was. The metal structure he possesses does appear to be similar to an article that was built by a contractor and tested at Marshall, but we were not able to confirm that it was the test article. We did confirm that this article isn't the same design as the lunar rovers on the moon. Marshall fully restored two engineering test rovers that are identical to the lunar rovers used on the moon. That said, Johnny Worley knows that NASA wants the rover back. He had multiple interactions with the inspector general, NASA asked him to donate it. NASA asked him to loan it to them for a while. And he's considered it. But he really wants to sell it. And last month, he actually held an auction, the one that was advertised in the local newspaper. They wanted to come out and take measurements to authenticate it to see, in fact, if this was the Von Braun unit built. Uh, I uh did not have any issues or problems with that they came to my location in um, arab alabama to my salvage site i measured it uh, i do have pictures of the nasa piece people it was um all oh, one of them uh, was inspector general and uh they just came out to really see if it was the bond bond that had been lost I was told that it was the rarest of all the the uh, prototypes that was ever built, uh, that they thought that it was extinct, that it did not exist. They were under the impression when it came to the scrapyard that it was automatically um, shredded up, scrapped, for scrap. Mm-hmm. But the difference was, if it had gone to any other scrapyard, it would have been. But I just happened to be the first scrapyard from from there, uh, where the unit was located. And when it came in, well, I immediately recognized from the description of what it was. And at that point, I took it and actually put it in storage. Right. And then NASA thought that it had been destroyed from that point. Are you a space history fan? How did you know that this existed? Just from the talk uh, in the town of... uh, Bronxville, Alabama, when it was bought, the gentleman, the road commissioner, when he bought it, he, uh, it was always known as a moon buggy. Mm-hmm. And it just sat there probably uh, 30, 40 years in the little town. 
and everybody in the town knew of the moon buggy. And when I had actually been called at a bus was about 25 miles from Hayrell, Alabama, and I had been called to go look at some scrap that was right next door to where the unit had sat for many, many years. And when I was looking at it, the person showing it to me said, well, there's a moon buggy next door. And at that point, I said, well, I really need to see that. Mm-hmm. And I went over and looked at it, and it, it got my interest from that point forward. Right, right. So NASA sent out an inspector general, and uh, NASA wanted it back, correct? That is correct, yes. Right, But they didn't offer you any money or anything for it? No, they actually wanted me to donate it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, obviously it's it's quite valuable, so is that why you didn't want to donate it versus, you know, sell it eventually? Right. The I just thought the unit uh, was quite a... Uh, I do love history of all type, and I just thought it was so amazing to own a piece of the Von Braun history, the very first prototype... Uh, that created, uh, I understand there's three um, lunar vehicles on the moon. There's one in the Smithsonian, and then there's the prototype that I have mm-hmm. that was thought not to exist. And I was just so amazed with that. I, I just couldn't believe that, you know, now I, I'm in possession and I own this great piece, piece of history. I just couldn't imagine donating it and giving it away. He held the auction that was advertised in the local newspaper, and there's at least one report from a woman who was there. Her name is Dawn Sabados, and she didn't want to talk to me for the podcast, but she did write a blog post earlier this month from her blog post. Around 20 people turned up for today's auction, including the seller, the auction house staff, and the three looky-loos I brought. Only five of us signed up to bid. I was number one. There was also an online auction open, but there wasn't any noticeable activity from that. Bidding started at 25000 and ended at 30000 which did not meet the reserve. As it stands, the auctioneer told us that we were welcome to make an offer directly to the seller. During the auction, we were told someone overseas had offered 250000 for it, so I certainly won't be making an offer. Johnny Worley says that he wants the rover to go to a good home. The rover isn't in great shape today, but Skivon says it's still recognizable. It doesn't have the seat in it. It doesn't have the controls in it. But he does have some rubber tires for it. Right. But but it is the vehicle, and I can confirm that. Mm-hmm. And we actually took that little vehicle and tested it out in Yuma, Arizona, at Yuma Proving Ground. So I have a picture of that myself of being tested at Yuma. Oh, wow. Um, do you have any thoughts on uh, where our space program has gone, you know, since then? What, what was it like to work, you know, when during the, the height of the space race? Well, out of the space race, it was really interesting because you got to remember now the average age for the engineer in the Apollo program was somewhere around 25, 24, 25 to 27. And we had no experience. So we didn't know we could go to the moon. We just went ahead and did it. And that's, that was sort of our attitude. Everybody had so much enthusiasm about doing this job that never, had never been done before. Right, and right. So that was, everybody was team members. We were not individuals. We were team members and we worked as team members and Anything we did reflected on us, the team, and, and that was what Von Brown always preached. We are the team. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for talking. Um, it's amazing to see this. Um, I'm, I'm really glad it kind of wasn't destroyed, and hopefully someone will uh, restore it and, 
you know, it'll be in a museum somewhere or something. Yeah. Well, there, there was a couple other vehicles we had, but I have no idea what happened to those either. Or maybe those turn up one of these days. Okay. So we're back. Um, I don't know what's going to happen to the lunar rover. Um, as Can we, we heard. buy it? So we were talking about <laughs> buying it. Yeah. We talked to Toby, our publisher, and Derek. Um, and we actually put in a vague offer to Johnny Worley, who you heard from back there. Um, and our offer was nowhere near what he wanted. What, is he, what does he want? Can we say? He wants upwards of 25K, right. it sounds like, because that was the reserve in this auction and it got a 25K bid and he didn't sell it. So we were like, we'll give you like $500 in a motherboard pin. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were willing to go up to 10, 10K. Uh, because it would have been some nice content. We could have made a video and then like stored this giant lunar rover at our put, new office or something. A, yeah, I, there's not room for there's the no lunar space rover there, at the yeah. new office or this one. Yeah, there's not. Um, I mean, I, I'm not. I think it would be fantastic to have, and I support buying it. But oh, me too. I absolutely want it. Um, I want to restore it and drive it around. Yeah, on can you drive it? It's probably not drivable right now, right? Not in the not in the uh, condition it's in, but you know we put some batteries on it and a steering wheel and whatever. Um, there are there are photos of this rover available on our website motherboard.vice.com, uh, and yeah, it basically looks like a, I don't know how to describe it, but it's kind of like two big wire poles that are connected to each other. It looks like some like a batting cage with wheels. Yeah, it's like. Like Very a, like primitive. A Why doesn't NASA yeah. just want to buy it? So NASA does want to buy it. NASA wants it back very much. But they um, don't have twenty thousand. The thing is, they don't buy it back. Like they, they would never. No, they buy, just they refuse. Would, yeah, the government doesn't pay people for things that the government believes is theirs. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the government. Well, I don't know if it's unfortunate or not, uh, depending on who you think should own it. But the government doesn't have the documentation to prove that it's theirs and they're not willing to uh you know put they they're not willing to pay for it like the taxpayer would get very angry can you imagine like ted cruz or donald trump how upset they'd get if we're spending taxpayer money on like old memorabilia i mean i know they love to go after nasa it's like a favorite pastime except for newt who wanted to go to mars Remember that? Yeah, Newt wants to make moon bases and go to Mars. So yeah, he's like the only Republican that I can think of in recent memory who like loves the idea of space exploration. Yeah. Anyways, thank you for listening. Um, this has been our first mystery episode. Uh, if you know anything more about what happened to this rover, like in the interim 50, 60 years since it's been found, uh, please shoot me an email at Jason dot kebler that's k-o-e-b-l-e-r at vice.com um and you can also write to us at letters at motherboard.tv spring is that you Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. 
Plus, the Superlight Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.